0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here. Matt Myers, com national editor. we got a pretty cool show for you today. We have uh, kind of a, a big piece of news on one of our favorite new metrics. We're going to talk about a pretty interesting pitcher you almost never think about, uh, one of last year's hardest-hitting teams who just decided to stop hitting barrels. Uh, we're going to induct a new play into the Hall of Fame. But first,
1: and most importantly, Matt Myers would like to offer a public apology. Uh, Go right ahead. <laughs> uh, as the diehard listeners will know, last week I gave a pretty uh, – Uh, impassioned endorsement of Luis Perdomo (laughs) as, uh, my, uh, my, uh, favorite new pitcher of 2017. San Diego Padres starter Luis Perdomo for Uh, the most of you who don't know that. Um, and then I subsequently on Twitter, I made an impassioned plea for people to go pick him up in fantasy. Um, at the time when I tweeted only 4% of, he was owned in only 4% of Yahoo leagues. Yahoo is uh, a MOV.com's fantasy partner. Um, a recommendation that, mind you, was retweeted and seconded by none other than MLB.com fantasy expert Fred, <laughs> Fred Zinke. <Zingy. laughs> <laughs> so I'm not al- I'm not alone on this island. Um, and at least one person I know of has told me they took me up on that endorsement. And uh, Perdomo uh, subsequently went out on Saturday against <laughs> the Diamondbacks. Uh, three innings pitched, 11, 11 hits. hits, 8 earned runs. Two strikeouts. So, uh.
0: Yeah, listen, let's say the Diamondbacks uh, are a better hitting team this year than I think people thought they might have been. It, uh,
1: Jake Lamb, I think, it, hit a homer off from the thing, and Jake Lamb has been very good this year. Was it
0: Was it in Arizona?
1: Um, no, it Was it? Oh, forget it. I'm trying my <laughs> best here. No, forget it. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't great. If, you, if it makes you feel any better, um, you know, I went down with the ship. I'm a. I had picked up Luis Perdomo on my fantasy team, and I play in a week to, weekly head to head league, and I. Lost to one of my best friends because of Louis, <laughs> solely because of Luis Perdomo's uh, poor performance. So I'm right there. For those of you who picked up Luis Perdomo on my recommendation, uh, I apologize, but I'm, I'm right there with you <laughs> feeling the pain. I will say in his previous four starts, he went exactly six innings in each of them 24 innings pitched total, um, eight earned runs total, 26 strikeouts in 24 innings with only six walks. Uh, a ground out fly out uh, ratio of more than two to one in every single one of those outings so i am still a believer um although i will say i did bench him this week facing the Nationals, so i'm not as much of a believer as maybe i was last week so he's, there's gonna be some growing pains as we said last week a rule five pick from last year who had barely pitched above a ball still refining the old uh the old uh, sinker that he's got but um He's still an interesting player, but I apologize for those of you who uh, wore it in fantasy last Saturday. Well,
0: respect for uh, stepping up to the plate with that one. Even the best pitchers have their moments, and he's still an interesting guy, as you said. Uh, So that public shaming out of the way. Let's talk about catch probability, right? So this is our favorite new tool of the year. And when we first introduced this over the winter, we, we said uh, catch probability is based on two things. How far did you have to go for outfielders to get there? And how much time did you have to get there out of the pitcher's hand? We call that opportunity time, right? How far did you have to go? How long did you have to get there? And that right there is an enormous part of outfield defense. That's a, a huge portion of being a good outfielder or not. But we also said that as time went on, we were going to add uh, some more nuance to that to really like refine it a little further. The first thing we said we were going to do in the early part of the season was add direction, because it's obviously a little bit harder to go straight back than it is to come in on the ball. And uh, it's not yet the end of May, so I'll still call that the early part of the season. And we've done that. We're ready to, to talk about that. So that has been added in, and we can tell you a little bit about how that works. And basically what I'm doing now is just taking a conversation I had with Tom Tango and doing my best to regurgitate it, because this is all the very good work of our colleague Tom Tango. So if you think about it, uh, for every outfielder, like their starting position, you can uh, you have the angle to where they're going to go. And we, we are defining this as the angle to their sprint speed, like the angle to where they're really going after the ball. And uh, at first, uh, Tom looked at it. He broke it down into 72 different five-degree slices around the fielder, which adds up to 360 degrees. And very simply, what he did was for each slice, uh, he took the catch probability based on distance and time. And he compared the actual catch probability in each of those directions, and he compared it to the expected. And for most of those directions, there was no change whatsoever because, you know, the actual and expected would be very similar. But going straight back, that is where the actual, that's where the difference was. That's really the only direction that he saw any, any uh, difference at all. And uh, what this eventually became was, was not 5 It was not 72 five-degree slices. We simplified it, and now it's six 60-degree slices, right? So there's three of them coming in, three of them going back. So uh, that's kind of where it's coming. So of those six 60-degree slices, the only one that actually has any change in in catch probability for direction out is the one that's going straight back. Right, and so the other five are unchanged. And so I should clarify what does back mean. And it's kind of a weird world we live in where you actually have to explain what going back actually means. Um, Because I remember we talked about this like like two years ago internally how to define this. Back and forward mean going to the home plate and away from home plate. Right. So if you think about it like visually on a field, if you're the right fielder, if you're going in, you're going in towards home plate. You're not going in like towards the first base dugout, like down. Do you know what I mean? Does that it make any sense at all? It does make sense. It's a little
1: it's a little weird, but it, it makes sense. It's
0: a little weird. So basically, the, if you think about, like, the North Pole is home plate, right? So yeah, uh, the way we define it is uh, zero degrees is going straight on in, and 100, 180 degrees is going straight back, right? And then 90 this way, 90 that way. So that's the way we've defined it. So back is really going between 150 degrees and 210 degrees. So 180 straight back, 30 degrees in either direction. I hope any of that has made sense to everybody <laughs> whatsoever. Um well, but I mean, that's how it's define. it.
1: think about it, you know, for for a left fielder, it's basically like running towards the left center field gap and towards the foul pole, essentially, right? If you're a left fielder, like so just to think of those, I mean that's essentially what it is, right? You're almost like a V. A it, v th- exactly down. right. And there's a certain point where you're going too far in and you're not actually going back, you're just going, you know,
0: to your left. And so that's actually a good point. So this is kind of the, the the version one of this where it is sort of a hard line there. You know, there's those lines and if you cross them, you're back or you're not. As time goes on, you know, Tom will smooth that out a little bit because you could be like one degree on either side and get credit for it or not get credit for it, which isn't ideal, but it's the first implementation of this. So it's it's pretty cool. So that explains how do you define uh, whether a, a player was going back or not. So that's the answer to that. But then what happens if you say, okay, this ball was going back? Well, what does that do? What does that, how does that change the catch probability? So what Tom has done here is uh, he shifted the data by one foot per second. So let me explain that. We introduced sprint speed. And we define that as feet per second in a player's fastest one-second window, right? And as we said uh, last year, if you caught the ball, the the major league average was about 27 uh, 27 feet per second. The really slow guys are, you know, 22, 23 feet per second. Hamilton, Buxton, like 30, 31 feet per second. So that's Buxton actually
1: had one play last week over the weekend where he didn't catch it, just missed a diving play where he went over – Thirty-two feet per second, which I think is is the highest we've seen this year.
0: It's it's like as fast as a human can do on a baseball field, and obviously that's a little different than like Usain Bolt, where he's you know going in a straight line. He's not trying to catch the ball. He's got the starting gun. That is about as fast as I think we'll ever see a human run on a baseball field. Uh, So Byron Buxton, as fast as Billy Hamilton, as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, so the way we defined this stuff before is if you had a five-star play, uh, as you just kind of alluded to, that would be in in the band of about thirty feet per second and north of that, so thirty feet per second to thirty-two feet per second, and that's just in a regular direction. But if you're going you get a little bit more credit for that because it's it's harder so now a five-star play going back is 29 feet to 31 per second you get that extra foot per second back you've shifted the scale uh and why did we do that because that keeps the conversion rate based on those bands on a similar scale we don't want if you're going back all of a sudden it's way way easier to get five-star plays than coming in or out It, it should still be consistent for everybody so that's like the nuts and bolts of it. And, and you know, I'm going to write about this and feel free to ask questions about it. But then the real question is, OK, oh well, how many plays does that actually affect? And so far in 2017, we're almost two months into the season, it's affected 300 plays over, you know, thousands of outfield catches. Right. And the majority of those plays, about 82 percent of those plays saw catch probability changes of five points or fewer, because basically it's like it was a catch. It was an easy pop up where it was like a 95 percent catch probability, but you did go back for it. So now it's like a 92 percent catch probability doesn't change it that much, but you get your your little amount of credit for it. Uh, 47 of those 300 plays, were 16%, saw changes between 6 points and 20 points, which can be kind of sizable at the high end of that. That can change a a 3-star play into a 4-star play or or, or another direction. And then we had 8 plays, so under 3%, but 8 plays saw changes between 21 points and 30 points, which is actually a pretty serious change. And the reason that the, the catch probability can change differently for different plays is, as I said, if it was an easy play... It's still going to be an easy play, just slightly, you know, more more credit for it. But if it was a difficult play, and then you add in that you had to go back, all of a sudden, that's a ball that not as many outfielders get to. So, we had eight plays that had a, a change in catch probability between 21 points and 30 points, and the top three of them have all happened in like the last four days, <laughs> which is fun. One of these plays is actually going to be our Hall of Fame play for the that's for the good, day. That's a good teaser, right? But there. It's an amazing teaser. I know I mean, we're I'm we're not, very we're good at this. Gonna, we're not going to mention <laughs> no, it now. We're not going to mention that one now. Um, but so the, the, the two plays at the top of the list that had the biggest difference, these Plays changed 29 percentage points. And it's interesting. They actually both were 55% catch probability before and 26% catch probability now. So they were three star plays, and now they're on the borderline of being a five star play. And I should add, I don't think our leaderboards on Baseball Salon account for this just yet. They will in the very near future if you're wondering why there's some slight discrepancies. Um, but it's really interesting. Last night, Justin Upton had one of these plays uh, for the Tigers playing in Houston, and it was a 55% catch probability play
1: without the direction added. And when you put the direction in, all of a sudden, that's a very impressive play. Yeah, well, and it was particularly impressive because. You know, I don't really think of Upton as a standout outfielder, but he made the play look pretty. It was a hit into the left center field gap in Houston. Um, and he's just going back towards, you know, as I was sort of describing before, like essentially like the left, like whatever the, the, uh, what would typically be the, uh, the wall marking where it says like you know three eighty five or whatever yeah. on the wall, going back to, in that direction from his starting spot in left field, and he caught it on the run. He did not need to dive, but he was definitely going full speed and out. You had to sort of do like a little like lunge, but it was an excellent catch. Interesting thing about Upton because I was like looking, I was like, oh maybe this is the, you know his best catch he's ever made because I don't because as I was saying I don't think he he's not a standout guy to me. Um This year he's four for seven on four star catches, which impressed me. But last year. He was one for 26 on five-star opportunities. So there's definitely – he's definitely – clearly there's a line for Justin Upton of what he can and can't do. But certainly up until that line – he seems like he's pretty good. I mean, it's kind of the difference between talent and consistency,
0: right? (laughs) Because you need both of those things, but every once in a while, uh, even a guy you don't think of as being a great fielder can come up and make one of those great plays. It's kind of, you know, the second guy on the list who also tied uh, with the biggest adjustment in catch probability is Aaron Judge. And this was, uh, I think, over the weekend. It was a couple days ago. I was out of town, and he made kind of a very similar play, uh, but from right field, kind of going towards center. Now, not so far towards center that it wasn't going back. It was still going back, but it was kind of back and to his right. So he'd started, you know, at a, traditional right field spot and almost hit the wall uh, in right center field to make a diving catch that really looked fantastic actually better than it seemed at the time
1: yeah no and the thing about what's interesting about that play is, is um it showed you what a unique talent aaron judges now he's not someone who's i based on his size I, he's not someone i would expect his speed to necessarily age that gracefully but like on that play you know four-star catch he was like at like 29 feet per second like he was running in the leads i mean that's you know, I looked it up just for a little context compared to his Yankee teammates, you know, Jacoby Ellsbury and Brett Gardner, uh, two guys known for their speed, granted they're in their 30s now. Neither of them has run as fast this season as Aaron Judge did on that play. That's, uh, I, you know, I, I honestly can say I did not know that, and that's amazing. <laughs> I'm so happy that well, I know that now. Once he gets going, he can really move. He's still a few bases. Like like I said, I wouldn't expect this speed to last, you know, for Aaron Judge, considering he's seven, and we kind of know how players age, but right now he is, like... His his freakish the nature of his freakish athleticism goes beyond just hitting the ball 120 miles an hour. Yes, which is which is um, I think a
0: really big deal for the Yankees. So that's kind of how we're going about this, and
1: I, I think it's cool. As we said,
0: we're going to make more changes in the future. I think we'd like to account for batted ball spin because you know the corners, a hook and a slice, and all that can matter. Um, but for now, this is a, this is our kind of first big second step. So that's cool, and uh, you're going to see when you see these things reported now on Twitter and in video, you will see them with the catch probability direction included. Uh, As I said, we need a a minute to get the leaderboards up to date, so that might be slightly out of sync for a little bit, but uh, we're getting there, so I think that's cool. Please let us know what you think about it. Uh, A lot of other stuff to talk about, but before we move on, a quick minute to talk about the MLB Pipeline podcast, which focuses on all things draft and prospect-related, and the draft is really coming up soon, isn't it? The Pipeline's draft and prospect gurus, uh, Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, joined Tim McMaster each week to talk about what's going on in the universe of MLB's future stars. Last week, they unveiled their 2017 MLB mock draft, led by high school right-hander Hunter Green, who actually joined the show to talk about life as the potential number one pick, which is pretty cool. So search for MLB Pipeline in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and click subscribe.
1: Yeah, we also had a really cool piece um, on Green on the site today. Uh, Mayo went out and spent a few days with him. We're rolling out kind of a series on Hunter Green, uh, who might become the first right high school right-hander to ever go number one overall in the draft in the draft, which is kind of amazing. has has never happened. Um, I mean, Green has hit 102. Uh, 17 years old. He's at 102 on the radar gun. That's that's something. That, that is a name to remember. Uh, and the MLB
0: draft is in just a couple of weeks, so that'll be very cool. Well, Let's move on. Let's talk about a, a pitcher that I don't know. Depending on what kind of what kind of baseball fan are you, might have been. Dreaming on this pitcher for a number of years, or you may very well have never heard of him. Uh, Jesse Hahn, who is a starting pitcher for the for Oakland, and we're going to explain why he's so interesting in just a second. Did you know? And I just learned this today, he was a high school teammate of Matt
1: Harvey. I I, I had no idea. And I, as someone who sort of uh, likes to think of themselves as a, uh, maybe aficionado of uh, Northeast uh, amateur baseball, at least relative to the, the masses, I'm a little disappointed in myself that I did not know this, frankly. Yeah, I did not know that he was a fellow uh. I guess Mystic High School alum. I had I had
0: no idea. So Jesse Hahn is forgotten.
1: Whatever they were, the
0: starter for Oakland. Uh, and it, if you know anything about him, it's that he, he has a lot of injuries. He actually he actually tore his UCL in his final college start. Uh, got, he missed all of 2011 with Tommy John after being picked by uh, Tampa Bay in 2010. I uh, missed half of 2015 with a forearm strain, missed a big part of 2016 with a strained right shoulder, and, fortuitously for this podcast, strained his triceps on Tuesday and may be going <laughs> on the disabled list. So maybe not our best timing, but I still find him really interesting, uh, and not just because he was in a couple of interesting deals. He was traded from Tampa to San Diego in the Logan Forsyth, Matt Andresi, Brad Boxberger deal, and then later that year traded to Oakland in the Derek Norris deal. So he's been with Oakland for a couple of years. And uh, there's really two reasons why I find him fascinating. Number one is that if you look at the 2017 Curveball Spin Leaders, uh, he is number two on the list. He has a, an average spin rate of... Uh, just about 3,000, 29.98. The major league average is 25.01, so we're talking about like 500 RPMs per minute above average. That's number two to Austin Pruitt of Tampa Bay, who I think we've talked about before. Uh, Of 121 guys who've thrown at least 50, he has the second highest. Above some guys we've talked about before, we know that Jeremy Hellickson has a a great curveball. Interestingly enough, Sonny Gray, who came off the disabled list and looked really good, he's on this list as well. Uh, We know that uh, Charlie Morton has had a good curve. Jonathan Holder we've talked about. And what I do find fascinating about this top 10 list, I'm just diverging for a second from just Han. Joe Kelly's on this list. We've been talking about Joe Kelly for like three years as a guy who has amazing fastball velocity, but like completely unimpressive spin. And here he is with a high spin curveball.
1: I learned something about Joe Kelly today. Joe Kelly, who's throwing now throwing 101 regularly out of the yeah, bullpen. And,
0: and not even doing that well with it. That's the most incredible part. So anyway, um, Jesse Han has an incredibly high spin curveball and you know as we've talked about many times before if you have a high spin curveball that tends to get more movement vertically it can bury it into the dirt uh, higher spin curveballs are harder to make contact with they're harder to make solid contact with low spin curveballs may stay up and then land about 500 feet away in the bleacher so it is good to have a high spin curveball it's a, it is most likely his best pitch it's got a 36 percent strikeout rate against this curve so if you know nothing about jesse han so far you know he's got a very high spin curveball and of course that's going to interest us on this show now i thought this was interesting too We've been using uh, our, our numbers to come up with expected weighted on base, and weighted on base is very similar to uh, on base percentage, except you get increasingly more credit for the way you get on base. It's not the same value for every type. Home run is better than a double, is better than a single, is better than a walk, etc. And based on hit probability, based on you know the quality of contact you allow, we can put a value on how likely you were to have given up a hit, even if your terrible defense didn't really turn it into an out. And we roll in real-world strikeouts and walks, and we can come up with an expected outcome. You can do an expected batting average, but here we're going to do it expected weighted on base. So I looked at 148 starting pitchers who've had at least 50 plate appearances against them in each of the last two years. And I looked at, you know, who are, who's the biggest improvers, right? Who have made the biggest steps forward? And um, on this top 10 list is Zach Granke, unsurprisingly. Uh, Alex Wood, who's been unbelievable. Jesse Hahn is number five on this list, and I would say he's actually number four on this list of guys who are going to pitch anytime soon. Because Shelby Miller is one of those guys, and I think that gets a little bit to how this list at the top is sort of put together because he's an improver. All these guys are, yes, and that's partially because they were really just dreadful last year. The number one guy in on this list is, uh, and I, I actually don't know which is the right way to pronounce his name, so I'm going to guess Jose Barrios. Barrios, I don't even know you don't know yeah, either cuz you're right? not jumping but it, in. He <laughs> was
1: my, it was my uh, 2016 AL Rookie of the right. Year pick, so a year late he, on him. And he looked awful last year and then in a couple starts this year and in the WBC he's looked phenomenal. I mean if this is another another aside right here, if, if Jose if this the barrios we've seen the last, you know, month or three or four outings that he's had is "quote unquote real for this year, I am fully on board Twins as a playoff contender. This like, he, year. Yeah, this, this year. I know, uh, I say next year. I, well, that's a, that's a different cut. Co- as a, a wild-card contender. I'm talking about a, as a wild-card okay. contender. They, they, suddenly, they basically just like pulled a number-two starter out of thin air. And with the way Santana's pitching, I, I'm— if,
0: if Santana can continue pitching like 1999 Pedro Martinez, then then yes, I'm in. But anyway, I agree. You know I love Byron Buxton. We've talked about the Twins a lot. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, Jesse Hahn— has made the fifth largest step forward. Now, partially, he wasn't very good last year. That's part of it. Uh, but the, the league average weighted on base is 327 over the last two years. And he right now so far is at 293. I mean, that that's that's pretty good. And that's lower than a lot of the other guys in this list. Even Shelby Miller, who was pitching pretty well, is at 288. So he's gone from being extremely below average to being above average. I'll give you another name here. Luis Severino, who's been really pretty good this year. He's at 310. So in
1: at least one sense, Jesse Hahn has outpitched Luis Severino um yeah no he's he's interesting the the tricep thing is a little disappointing hopefully it's not he's not shelved on the shelf for too long because uh now uh, I can start paying attention to him more as well
0: (laughs) well that's kind of the idea right I don't have any further deep thoughts about Jesse Hahn just in the sense that like here's a guy you've either never ever thought about or barely thought about well we know he's got a great curveball we can see he's taken a step forward if he can ever stay healthy for more than like 10 consecutive minutes he could be interesting and before we move on I will say nobody really has even thought about the Oakland A's at all this year but that pitching staff could potentially be really cool, right? Kendall Graveman is uh, throws nothing but sinkers, which I find hilarious. Uh, Jarrell Cotton, who throws this sort of screwball changeup, that could be really interesting. Uh, Sean Manea and Andrew Triggs—these like, are guys you don't know, but every single one of them is interesting in some way. Like I actually kind of find that pitching rotation fascinating.
1: Yeah, you you obviously it makes you wonder. Obviously, the obviously there's a little bit of. You know, a little bit of good fortune probably within it because a lot of these are kind of like low-end pickups. But like the Ace certainly saw something in these guys, and um, uh, you know, Cotton's had his ups and downs, literally uh, going being sent down to the minors. But um, it's uh it's oakland they always do there was you know they get, a, they still get a little funky with their uh, with their their transactions and well, uh, you're seeing some results here well
0: i'm looking at our list here of a uh, fewest barrels per ball in play so basically the pitchers who are avoiding the most dangerous contact the best uh, alex wood's on this list jesse hans on this list andrew triggs is on this list drayle cotton's on this list irvin santana who we just talked about is on this list and uh at somehow at the top joe biagini who I would probably have to give you thirty guesses for you to figure out what team he's on. It's it's the Blue Jays. He was a Rule Five pick last year. Uh, so anyway, that's that's an interesting list. The guys who avoid the hardest contact. Now speaking of hard contact, this is something that hitters want to do as often as they can. And um, I know for like the last two weeks, Matt's been really excited about. There's a couple of hitters who have had zero barrels this year, and I'm not even talking about like D Gordon. I'm talking about like really good above average solid hitters there's still two guys
1: who have had at least 100 balls in play who have not had one barrel and they're two all-stars yeah this is this is my favorite stat thus far it's a, you hate to, to kind of root against guys but i'm kind of rooting for this to maintain for as long as as long as possible there are 174 players with 100 bad, i think actually think i brought this up on the podcast a couple weeks ago i can't tell because i you know I, I talk about this all the time so i can't remember what brought it up but i'm gonna go go with it anyway 174 players uh, entering play on Thursday with at least 100 balls in play. There are only two out of those 174 who have zero barrels, and they happen to be a double play combination on the same team. Dustin Bedroia and Xander Bogarts. And Bogarts is the one that really surprised me. There was a third guy on that list, Josh Harrison, but he got a barrel last night. He so, finally uh,
0: got a barrel last night. He's off the night. Uh, have we gone so far in the show where we don't have to explain barrels anymore? Can we just assume
1: everybody knows a barrel? I'll give a quick an- explanation. Um, it's basically – it starts at 98 miles per hour exit velocity with a window of 26 to 30 degree launch angle. And as your exit velocity goes up, the launch angle window goes up. So you can get a barrel at like 118 miles an hour even at like – you know, seven, seven degree launch angle. It's, yep. The idea is to identify things that are likely to be extra base hits.
0: It's a, it's the perfect combination between launch angle and exit velocity uh, with an expected average of at least 500 and a slugging percentage of 1500. It's like the best thing a hitter can do. It's the best thing a pitcher can avoid.
1: And like, I think either last night or the night before I've become, you know, I've become such a, uh, so predictable that like, I think uh, Bogarts had one that was like 106 and 17. So we basically just missed the barrel zone and like, Andrew Simon, one of our researchers, was like, Oh, like I think I think Bogart's got a barrel and we looked it up, you know, he just he just yeah, missed, missed. It. So he's he's still at zero. I mean, to me, Dave Cameron wrote about this at Van Graaff's recently. To me, Bogart's is a fascinating player because in terms of like his athleticism and you know, he's listed at at six one two ten. I think he's probably at this point in his career, he's twenty four years old, he's probably weighs more than that. But that's probably what he weighed when he, you know, first cracked the forty man roster. Um, he looks the part of you know, one of these classic, you know, the the new breed of, of shortstops, the, you know, the Correas, you know, going back a little bit to, you know, Nomari, Rajita, like that kind of group. And from an overall production standpoint, based on his defense and the fact that he hits for a high average, he sort of fits, but he doesn't really hit for power. I mean, great. He did have 28 barrels last year, but that's not, that's just a good, that's not, not an elite number. The league leader had like
0: uh, almost 80. Yeah. Over 70. I think the league leader right now is Chris with a K Davis who has 20. 20- Five, I want to say, something like
1: that. 24, so it's like, you know, so even last year, a great year for him, he wasn't really barreling the ball up that that regularly. But zero. But now he's got zero. He's got zero. (laughs) And what's fascinating about him, and this is something that Cameron talked about in his piece, is basically, like, he's clearly very good at taking taking advantage of Fenway Park. And, like, to a certain extent, you can – you don't want to penalize him because, like, if a player is able to cater what he does to the park that he plays in – and if you're a right-handed hitter playing in Boston, just like Padre did earlier in his career, being able to sort of like cater your swing to hit high fly balls to left field, there are you know you sh- you probably would be wise to do that. But like this, the thing I've n- noticed about it is that it depends on the ballpark that you are. Players and the public perception, th- it changes much more than others. I'll give you a perfect example comparing Bogarts to a guy who plays on the Rockies, where everyone everyone is on the Rockies who puts up good numbers. Everyone says always oh, a product of Coors Field. Um, Bogart's career line at home 314, 371, 451 on the road 265, 313, 378 slugs 378 away from Fenway Park Um, there's a stat on baseball reference called T-O-P-S and I'll try to explain it here Mike you can tell me if I'm doing it right basically T-O-P-S takes what you're like it acknowledges what your, your average OPS is and sets that as 100 and in a given split whatever you do better or worse than that you get you know, you get points higher or lower. So, seven His OPS at ho- TOPS at home is one seventeen, which means he's seventeen percentage points better than like what you would essentially expect from him in, in a neutral in a neutral environment.
0: So, so in this case, it's not above league average, which is how these, these one hundred plus stats usually are. It's against his own average as the average. So, in this ballpark, he might be one seventeen, in some other ballpark, he might
1: be ninety eight. It's it's a split against himself. So, home, he's one seventeen. Road, he's eighty three. Let's look at N- Nolan Arenado. Home, home line overall, 307, this career, 307, 353, 580. Road, 264, 311, 468. T.O.P.S. at home, 117. T.O.P.S. on the road, 83. Now, I'm no scientist, but those sound very similar to
0: me. Identical.
1: <laughs> so essentially what we're saying is that Bogarts benefits as much from Fenway Park as Nolan Arenado does of course. Field. Does a course field. Did I just blow your minds? I hope I did. I, I, my mind is blown. Um, and to give you just another example of uh, Carlos Gonzalez, who's basically played his entire career at Coors Field. I'd forgotten that he debuted with the, the uh, A's. Like, I looked him up today. And I was yeah. like, oh, I'd forgotten he played, like, half a season with the A's. Um, he's 125 at home and 78 on the road for his career. So, you know, he's even more um, a wider extreme than either of those guys. And you see that with guys in the Rockies regularly. But – The point remains that other guys kind of get that benefit from their home park too. Most players – I shouldn't say most – players often perform better at home for a variety of reasons – they can cater their swing to the dimensions they're more familiar with the batter's eye you know maybe they just sleep better at home there's a variety of reasons for it um and you shouldn't necessarily penalize a guy for it but like we need to acknowledge that dander bogart's the perfect example of a guy who really benefits from his home park
0: yeah i I find that the the way that you found that to be exactly the same as nolan arenado i think that's really interesting because i never really thought about it that way uh but what's kind of interesting is this You know, as you said, these guys are a double play combination. And this is sort of a team wide endemic for the Red Sox this year that the offense, you know, the offense has been okay, but the power just hasn't been there. So if you look at team barrels headed into uh, today's games, uh, the Red Sox have 64 barrels. And that is tied with the Giants for the second fewest in all of baseball, only ahead of Pittsburgh. And we know that the Pittsburgh's had their problems. At the top of that list is Detroit. You know, Miguel Cabrera, J.D. Martinez, Alex Avila, who's hitting literally everything in sight right now. Uh, Oakland, and that's, remember, this doesn't account for contact, so that's how you have Chris with a K. Davis, who's really helping them. Ryan Healy. Healy. <laughs> Chad, <laughs> not,
1: Chad Pinder, who hit one for
0: Yonder <laughs> Alonzo. I mean, they, I, I'm, I'm suddenly very interested in the A's, apparently. <laughs> um, last year, the Red Sox had the eighth most barrels, right? And now they are down to tied for the second most. And I think we expected this to some extent. Like, David Ortiz is gone. Mitch Moreland isn't as, per, as powerful as a hitter. Uh, but you kind of also expected, well, Andrew Penitendi, you'll get a full season out of him, right? You'll you'll got another year out of Mookie Betts and Jackie Bradley. And it just it
1: hasn't really happened yet. Well, the, there's two things that I think are interesting about this. One of which, you know, we've talked about Betts before as someone who sort of like outperforms his quality of contact for a couple of reasons. One of which is Fenway Park. And I yes. think he sort of falls into a little bit that what we're talking about with Bogarts, the guy who, you know, isn't a pure power hitter and is able to kind of cater his swing um, to work in Fenway the way Pedroia did when he you know won the MVP, which is almost hard to believe in retrospect, but it happened. Um, I vaguely remember that. <laughs> uh, but also seeing um, Boston and Houston on this list, two of the you know more talented, pure talent lineups on pure talent in baseball, and also having two very similar left field dimensions, you do wonder if there are players on those teams, particularly right hand hitters, who are maybe sacrificing some barrels. In the attempt to hit high fly balls, knowing that they can get essentially cheap home runs. To let me, last night we saw uh, Alex Bregman hit the lowest ex velocity home run of the season. Uh, it was 88.3 miles per hour. And the inning before, Jose Iglesias hit 190.3 right into the Crawford boxes um, in Houston. So I do wonder if, you know, now that we are that much more aware of players catering their swings. To try and hit certain types of balls, I do wonder if that is a factor for those two teams.
0: What I've learned about since working with Statcast is that the ballparks I talk about most often—it's not even Coors Field; it's it's Detroit and it's Houston. Like it, we're always talking about center field in Detroit and the corners in Houston because it just changes the game so much.
1: Yeah, uh, Manny Rendawa uh, wrote a piece about this for the site last night. Kind of this is where I kind of got this info on the Iglesias and Bregman home runs. That when it comes to the, the easiest ballparks to hit, quote-unquote, cheap home runs. Um, and th- by, we define that as the highest percentage of home runs that are neither barreled or solid contact. So like sort of like the two best of our sixth, sixth uh, batter ball classifications, the two best are barrels and solid contact, which yeah. is basically a small sliver just shy of a barrel. So
0: we, we have six. Uh, you're eliminating the two best, and three of them are just bad for the hitter. So
1: basically we're talking about that one narrow band where home runs go out. Yeah, and um, – essentially 16% of home runs at Minute Maid are neither barrels are or cell conduct, which is by far the highest in baseball. Number two is Yankee Stadium at like 11%, um, and which I think when you think about it, it makes sense. Like Yankee Stadium has one known area where you can get cheap home runs. Houston has two right down the right field line. We, had, we inducted Marvin Gonzalez. Right, we sure this, did. <laughs> uh, with a 4% hit probability home run a couple weeks ago down the right field line. And left field line, or even – Basically, left field in general in Houston is is like a whole, you know, area for cheap home runs. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Bush Stadium. Only 2% of home runs are not barreled or solid contact. So in a certain way, that's the toughest park. To to, to hit a home run there, you actually have to really – really cooperative
0: you have uh, you've stumbled upon the, the first step towards park factors for Statcast, which we're going to get there let's um let's finish off the show by inducting a play into the hall of fame we used this a little bit before it actually is one of our plays that changed by a guy going back and it was also just interesting for like four other reasons so tuesday in los angeles dodgers cardinals top 10 uh game is tied 1-1 in the 10th inning yadi merlin is batting yadi crushes a ball to right center field and uh, from center field, in comes Jock Peterson. And from right field, in comes Yasiel Puig. out goes. Well, out goes, right? And uh, right on the lip of the warning track... They basically run directly into one another, and uh, you know Yasiel Puig at full speed is not a man you want to be running into. Now Puig actually makes the catch, and uh, you know he really just blew up his teammate while doing it. As Dave Roberts said about Jock Peterson, he's got cuts on his forehead, his arm. He took an elbow to his jaw, and he hit his head against the wall. So that is that's a catch that really uh, it, it you know you paid for that catch. So. We're, we're inducting it into the Hall of Fame for two reasons. One is because that was actually, to date, the third biggest play in terms of a difference in catch probability, because he was going back into his right. So that catch would have been a 46% catch probability play, which is a four-star play. That's pretty good. And uh, now it's a five-star play. It's an 18% catch probability, because he had to go back. And that's a huge difference to start with. But here's also the thing. This is something of a reverse Kelly Leak play. Because when we did these Kelly Leak plays, we looked at center fielders who stole the balls from their teammate. Well, Jock Peterson was actually closer in center field than Yasiel Puig was in right field. Now, they each had an identical 5.02 seconds to get there, uh, but Jock Peterson was 86 feet away, and Yasiel Puig was 93 feet away. And yet they got there at the exact same time. The sprint speed for Jack Peterson, his fastest one-second window, 26.7 feet per second for Yasiel Puig, 28.7 feet per second. So you can see Puig got there a little more quickly. And uh, Puig's quote after this was amazing. We we went all out for it. That's just just how baseball is. I was the first to get there. When I got there, I told him I had it, and it was too late. Which is, I mean, that's peak
1: it's, Puig right it there. It sure was. I mean, <laughs> it's actually now two, possibly my two favorite catches of the year. Both happened in Dodger Stadium in an extra inning game, Toles, yeah. Andrew Tolls had one like in the 13th. It was like an, an was extra inning game, the Giants, yeah. an extra inning game, like diving catch. They ended up losing diving catch deep in the warning track. It was like eight percent catch probability, but it happened. You know, admittedly, after I'd gone to bed, so I didn't see it. But had to relive it just goes by. Us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean,
0: that, that's kind of if you. It, and we're not really even doing it justice. You actually have to watch this play because they run into each other. Peterson goes down, Puig gets up and is like, yeah, I got the ball, and then just slowly collapses, and uh, I think they both left the game. Uh, Peterson didn't play last night, but he's expected to avoid the DL. Puig did play last night, so fortunately, serious injury was avoided, Um, but it's just, a a great play. It looked great. It was a five-star play. It's a great example of how going back can change the probabilities, and it was a right fielder who had to go a further distance than his center fielder and just
1: bolt him over in doing it. Uh, For so many reasons, it's one of my favorite plays of the year, especially the fact that no one actually got hurt. Indeed. So Yasiel Puig, and I guess Jack Peterson, welcome to the StatCast Hall Welcome of fame.
0: to the most painful induction to the StatCast Hall of Fame we've had so far. That is our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Mike Petriello. Matt Myers. We'll catch you next week on the OMB.com StatCast podcast.
2: Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best